Hi. Hi. Welcome to season two, episode two of Hide or Practice. We have Sue Bell Yank, Deputy Director of 18th Street Art Center here in Los Angeles. Welcome, Sue. Thank you. Glad to be here. Los Angeles for such a long time um, doing so many cool things. Will you give our listeners like a little rundown of who you are and what you do? And Sure. Um, I grew up on the East Coast and in Philadelphia and um, but always, you know, was interested in going into the arts. Um, and I knew that kind of New York and LA were sort of the places to be, or at least in college, that's what I thought. Um, so I um, Actually, um, also under underlying a lot of my education has been an interest in social justice and education, um, particularly. And so I actually joined Teach for America out of college, and that's what had me sent out to LA. Um, and I was put in the core here in LA and taught in South LA for four years, actually, um, in Linwood, and then later in LAUSD. And while I was a teacher, I tried to um, integrate the arts as much as I could into my classroom from that side of things. But it was really, really challenging. I kind of learned firsthand how, um, how difficult it is for teachers to get to everything in the classroom, especially when you're in a multiple subjects elementary school classroom, um, and felt like I might be able to uh, affect more change on the other side of things, providing arts um, an arts education from like a museum point of view or an arts organization that had that as, as its focus. So that sort of led me to um, go back to school and I went to USC for public art studies. Um, I chose that program because I was really interested in the role of arts in society more broadly uh, rather than you know honing in on a specific artist and more of like an art historical context or something like that. So I, I was interested in you know how art worked in cities, how art uh, worked in education, you know why it was important for young people to be exposed to art, and how they could gain access to the arts. So that kind of led me down my path. Um, I ended up working at the Hammer Museum out of grad school, and. Um, a few years into it, ended up running the, the education program there, which is called Academic Programs. And that focused on college students, but also I built out the Teacher and Family Program there, which is an amazing experience. Love that institution. Um, and then I kind of took a, a zigzag in my career <laughs> and ended up working for the Oprah Winfrey Network for a couple of years. And I was motivated you know, to do that for a couple of reasons. I think one of them was while I was at the Hammer, um, it was fantastic to work on arts education and, you know, bring people there. But I got really concerned that the people we were serving were folks that already were, you know, going to come to museums and were already the audience. And I was wondering much more about how do we reach everybody who wasn't coming to the museum, all the people who felt like art maybe wasn't important in their lives um, or that, you know, didn't have access to it for whatever reason. So I felt like who better than Oprah to, Literally <laughs> be, able no to one. <laughs> be able to reach 
a really broad audience. Um, and what could I learn about that? So that kind of drove me a little bit more towards communications. You know, how do you talk to people about the importance of art, about the importance of artistic thinking and supporting artists in our society? Um, and I learned so much from being in that context, but I also realized that it, it wasn't my thing. And I was, you know, I really did want to return to the arts and to the nonprofit sector in particular. Um, but amazing experience, um, fantastic to work there. And I ended up um, actually at 18th Street Art Center, a much smaller organization than ones I had worked for in the past, but um, small but mighty, I like to say. And they've been around for 30 years supporting artists in Santa Monica um, and are primarily an artist residency program. And so I came on there in the role of both communications, which I didn't know as much um, about, but I had learned at the Oprah Winfrey Network, and also in public programming, which I did know uh, quite a bit about. So I really liked both sides of that, being able to like, you know, be one-on-one -on -one with people and deal with people directly and create really great programs to engage people, but also be trying to communicate to a much broader and wider audience. And so that kind of led me to where I am now. So, so cool. <laughs> so cool. Everybody's so much nodding. Yeah, I, know. Every, I feel like everybody has a different path in the arts, you know, it's all of these. You do. And no, and I love that, like, because I mean, you've obviously done like a lot of education on your own because you got your master's and you know, worked through there, but then also you're so open about how much you learned on the job, which I think is a big thing in the art world that we don't talk about so much because it's like oh like what are my qualifications but like a lot of times what we're doing is has never been done before yeah. you know if you're talking about a public installation or an exhibition even just this exhibition has never been put on before or this public program has never been put on before and you do have to learn on the job and you have to adapt and I think that kind of artistic thinking that you've been trying to push out to as many people as possible in such a beautiful, wonderful way is the kind of stuff that those are the kind of tools that we can use to be able to accomplish those things. Don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it really, um, a lot of these organizations, you know, are, um, putting it together as they go along much the way that mm -hmm. artists do, you know, it's hard to settle into a real, um, unless you're a really giant organization, I think right. if you're if you're pushing the boundaries and you're trying to do new things, there's always that invention that is happening. Mm -hmm. And especially the the organizations I've worked for, which really hold artists at their core, um, I find that that reflects a lot of the time the way the staff also works. You know, is is kind of pushing the boundaries, thinking outside of the box. Um, at least in our ideal world, that's kind of how it works. Right. Um. How did you notice a big difference in between like how you worked and like the programs you were able to do in terms of like for-profit, non-profit world, like in terms of like ease or creativity? Yeah, I always think about, I mean, one of the things that really stands out to me is the level of evaluation of programs. And mm -hmm. I kind of got to see the like Cadillac level of research and development an evaluation that goes into um, developing a product, you know, a media product or something like that, and the money and the resources that go into that. And we just don't do as much of that in the art world and don't set aside as much money for 
evaluation or research or testing. So that was kind of a really interesting eye-opener. Um, not that that always works in, in arts organizations or is, is desired um, to do that kind of like focus group testing type of thing. But on the education side of things, that's always been something that I've desired more of. You know, can we see what impact we're really having? Um, and, and how do we do that in a really effective way? So I think organizations are often creative about how they try to put that together, but we're just not, we just don't have as much resources as the for-profit side. So that was really an eye-opener to me. So I'm interested in knowing um, so much attention, I think, especially for like the more quantifiable education side of things. I think a lot of people very much focus on STEM. So for the listeners who don't know what STEM stands for, it's science, technology, engineering, math. Thank you. <laughs> and I think that um, there are people who want it to become STEAM, which the A integrates arts part of to be part of the education. So I'm very interested in knowing when you were doing and when you are doing programming for education, um, do, do the public see the value in the arts in terms of programming and understanding that arts education is not just like, hey, let's draw a picture. It's slightly, it is actually slightly more than that. It, it does teach you to go and see the world slightly differently when you do integrate the arts into um, foundational education. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you. And I think, I think that's still a battle we're still fighting in many ways. Um, there's been so much good research about how arts education is fundamental to, you know, keeping kids in school, to motivating them. Um, kids who receive arts education often have much higher test scores. Uh, you know, it affects every other part of their schooling in some ways. Um, and then artistic thinking on its own, I think, in arts education can really um, be extremely powerful. And it's often the thing that leads to skills like creativity and collaboration, all of those things that are central to like uh, the common core, you know, and things that schools are supposed to be striving for and also central to what um, you know, potential employers are looking for in, in their, you know, future employees. So it, it's totally core, but I think we're, we're dealing with, um, you know, a, a massive public education system that is catching up to that and is often does not have the resources to put those things into place. And so we see arts organizations filling in the gap um, a lot of the times in different ways, you know, trying to, through after school programs or through, um, you know, bringing kids to different museums. LACMA does a very good job of reaching a lot of uh, schools in the county. So, you know, it's, but it's not a great system. I don't think it's, it's kind of core to what people value and appreciate about education in the same way that, you know, the science and technology, engineering and math, you know, everyone's like, yes, okay, we should definitely do that. But, um, but valuing artistic thinking, I think, is really important to, yeah, like you said, creating empathy amongst people, you know, allowing people to imagine new futures, new ways of doing things. And it's, it's a different kind of way of thinking than science or engineering or even design. I think it can really help us ask new questions and interrogate social structures, you know, in a way that's really, really important and relevant to our, to our, 
time, current time right now. No, I think, I mean, it's so true because it's, it's, especially recently, it's just been really wonderful to see the art that's being created and it's being highlighted more because of the current times in such a great way. Cause I feel like it really can help you investigate your thoughts. Why do you think that? What's this point of view in a way that's, I mean, obviously I'm biased is, you know, but like in a way that's really like cellular and like your, gets to your soul in a way that like just a conversation can't or reading an article or even reading a book. And I love to read books, but there's just, for me, you know, art's obviously a big language, but talking about investigating the social structure through art, you did a podcast called Paving Paradise, Pave Paradise. Pave Paradise, yeah. Pave Paradise, and it's about housing in Los Angeles. And I want to know a little bit more about how that kind of ties into your education, because I think that's like so important and a great way of getting things out there in a new, you know, avenue. But also there's one episode about creative placemaking that I also want to talk to you about um, because that was like really great. So could you tell us a little bit about Pave Paradise? Sure, sure. Um, well, I mean, my, my interest in urban development and the way that cities are shaped really came about in as part of my public art studies program, my graduate program. Um, when you think about public art or art in the public sphere, not within the kind of four white walls, it's really very dependent on the context that it's in, you know, and we, we studied so many artworks that either were successful or failed because of where they were placed and because of the community that was around them and whether they, um, you know, the history of that community and whether it resonated with the artwork or not. Um, and, you know, we studied a lot of artists who worked with communities in the development of their artwork too. And so that got me really interested in cities, communities, how they form, how they're shaped, and then all of those kind of urban policies that actually feed into the way that, you know, race is structured across a city, the geographies that people end up in, you know, how people migrate, all of those different kinds of things. Um, so this was really a opportunity for me, I think, to dive into that interest and in a little bit more folk with a little more focus. And I love LA, you know, ever since I've lived here, I've been just fascinated by it. It's completely different than the East Coast cities that I have lived in before. And so I'm also just really interested in how it developed as a region. Um, so this was a great opportunity. And, you know, the other, I think, influence was the cultural asset mapping project that we've done through 18th Street that I've overseen. Um, it's called Culture Mapping 90404. And it really was um, a community sourced kind of map of the culture of that neighborhood, the Pico neighborhood of Santa Monica. And so that also really underscored for me how like the cultural values of a place are constantly shifting and changing. And sometimes we think of these neighborhoods like Santa Monica as kind of a blank slate. You know, when you, when you move in, you don't necessarily think about all the history there and, and everything that's happened there. Um, and so that was also another big interest of me, kind of looking at the culture of a place as well as the sort of overarching policies that end up shaping that place. Um, so I was just interested in learning from all different voices, you know, artists, activists, scholars, lawyers, folks in housing policy, you know, what are all the different perspectives culturally, socially, 
and politically about how a place is formed. And it ended up being about housing because for everyone I talked to, it was just all about housing. <laughs> like yeah. all, the whole crisis of that, that LA is going through right now, the inequality in the city, gentrification, homelessness, like everything led back to housing policy. And that's what everybody wanted to talk about. So that's really what it ended up being about and what I ended up diving into. It's fantastic. So with the creative placemaking, that is what other people kind of know is like when the art galleries move to the less affluent neighborhoods. And then what follows is fancier apartments, gentrification of the neighborhood, because then they get the Starbucks and the fancier restaurant for the attendees of the galleries. Um, and it's, it's a real difficult conversation to have because there's a lot of very good and naive intentions a lot of times by moving art centers into these places but then this is what you're talking about where people move thinking it's a blank slate without knowing the history of what could culturally be interesting and what the neighborhoods are actually interested in yeah and you know and that's like the dark side of creative placemaking Mm -hmm. i would say i think it really started with a much um, not, maybe perhaps naive, but mm-hmm. with a much more positive intention. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was kind of a term that was made up by a bunch of funders about ten years ago um, to think about how arts could really help to engage communities in empowering them to shape their own city. You know, and this goes back to you know. Henri Lefebvre and French theorists about the right to the city, right? That, that people have the right to the city. You have the right to be able to shape your own place, the, the place where you live. And so I think it was this um, positive intention to kind of, you know, have the arts be part or a catalyst for having people shape their own neighborhoods um, and, you know, beautify them in the ways that were relevant to them. But of course, it's been used over time in various ways. And lots of different things have been called creative placemaking, you know. And that might be um, where an artist is really, you know, working with the community deeply. And there's a whole kind of partnership going on in terms of how that place could be beautified um, or have art more integrated into it. Or it could be, you know, coming down from on high from a city or from developers, say, and calling something an arts district and raising the property values and, you know, ending up gentrifying and pushing people out who've lived there for a long time. And so I think it, it's very much a double-edged sword. Um, and I think people are much more cautious about those kinds of projects these days um, and, and funding those projects and what sorts of um, what the process is behind, you know, having art in public space, because it very much can have that negative effect on a neighborhood. Well, it's super interesting because there's a difference between space and place, which goes back into sort of that like space theory. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm curious to know in Santa Monica or maybe like beyond Santa Monica. So I wrote um, an article quite a long time ago about what people think public art is, 
And a lot of people just think that public art are the statues that you see. And you're like, okay, if you can call it a statue, it's not public art. <laughs> There's a slight difference between the two. Um, but a lot of people generally are like, no, that's not true. That's that statue. That is the public art. And you're like, it commemorates somebody. That's like not, has nothing to do with like what's actually happening in this place that you're seeing this. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in knowing what are the what is like the response or like the interest in people when there are public I'm, I'm gonna call it more like generally like public engagement in terms of like having creativity out in the public is it well received are people interested in knowing more about the the fabric of the city that they may live in or that they're traveling to and seeing this piece yeah, I mean, I think it, it really very much depends on the process through which the art comes to a place. And um, I've, you know, there's, there's a great project that I'll just reference from Hamburg, Germany, Park Fiction, um, that was started by a couple of artists uh, in partnership, I think, with local organizations. Um, and there was a park that was, or there was a, um, a warehouse district right by the pier um, across from these uh, very tall tenement buildings. And the residents of the buildings really wanted that um, area by the water to become a waterfront park. And then, you know, there were developers who wanted it to, to wanted to build warehouses all, all through that district. Um, and so the artists sort of catalyzed these folks to imagine what this future park could look like. And they began with that, and then they were able to sort of leverage their art world connections to get that, um, get those future visionings out there really broadly, and um, were able to successfully petition the city to donate that land over to Parkland and actually fundraise around getting some of the imagined, um, you know, landscaping ideas into the actual park that the people had come up with. I mean, that was, you know, a rare kind of amazing successful effort and it took five years. Um, but I think that that kind of thing is a really successful, you know, example of a public art project that was relevant to its community, um, very much involved the community in the co-creation of the art itself and was more facilitated by the artists who were engaging in this process. And so, you know, that's the kind of public art or community engaged art that I think I'm really interested in. Um, and, you know, some of the projects that we've done at 18th Street or that I've seen on a much smaller scale, I think people are extremely interested in, you know, the way that their own neighborhood is shaped. And um, having that forum to be able to express that, if that's facilitated really well, and it's done in a way that is in partnership with the decision makers who can actually make things happen, um, that can be really powerful and really successful. Um, but it can go wrong too, you know, and I've seen those kinds of projects as well. Um, and so it really just depends on, you know, how how you arrive, how you enter into a community, and how much you listen. I mean, I think so much of it comes down to listening too, and it's something we're not super good at in our current kind of public art uh, processes that are more official. So 
it's, it's a really fascinating um, arena that I think has kept me fascinated throughout my career. And I don't think it's been figured out yet, but there's some really good examples out there. That's so exciting to think about. It's just, I love that like art can be like just such an entryway into so many things and just be, have it be like, this is my place and this is my neighborhood and my community. And it can be your entryway into, you know, your civil civic governance, you know, council meetings. Um, people don't realize that like these things are available. I mean, I've, been doing things for so long and there's still things that you know in that the government provides or that the county versus the city versus the state and it's interesting to go through that as like the art way as opposed to like the politics way um but it's interesting that there is an arts way to get yeah and i think that's something that i you know i hope becomes valued more I, i think we we very much um you know there's a sort of activist tactics and political organizing and arts groups will often borrow a lot of those really great tactics like grassroots organizing tactics to kind of you know get communities together but I think the goal can sometimes be different Um, in in some of these uh, community engaged art projects oftentimes it's cultural work that's being done right sort of like trying to investigate cultural ideas and maybe shift hearts and minds and in a generative, more long-term um, space. Whereas in a lot of activist practice, it's like either opposing something, you know, or having a specific plan that's being then promoted um, and, and fought for uh, within the government governing structure. And both of these are really important, you know, but I think the longer term sort of cultural work gets short shrift sometimes when we have really pressing policy needs, you know, that, you know, this policy is going to pass and it's going to be really bad and we have to oppose it, or um, we really need this, you know, new thing to happen here. And so, you know, both of those are really important, um, but one always seems to have more urgency than the other, but I think they're, they're important to happen in parallel. Definitely. Hand in hand. (laughs) Just like watching them, like walk down the, the beautiful park, beautified public art space. (laughs) <laughs> the long term exactly. and the short term. Exactly. And everyone's happy. Um, like, I'm super biased. I'm, like, extraordinarily biased because I love urbanization. I love the way the public engages with their community because I think that that's really important. And I think that there is a misconception to think that arts only exist within the white walls and the white cubes. And that's when you've got the spotlight on it that therefore naturally becomes art. Big conversation. I know there are probably people screaming and be like, what are you talking about? That's not true. Um, However, you know, as anyone who's ever read Jane Jacobs and understands that like, you know, the eyes on the street is a very important part of how we engage with the community and the fabric and how everything is super important. And I think sometimes I get super, what's a good word here? Um, Frustrated when public art is used as a method to get people, get money to get funding and it changes the way that you're engaging with a community or you're engaging with 
a certain street because it changes the way that you understand something. It, it becomes like a symbol and, and it doesn't necessarily always, it's not neutral, I guess that's what is that I'm trying to say. It becomes very politicized and, you know, it's super frustrating as somebody who does make public art and you're thinking that's not, that's not like how, that's not naturally what public art is supposed to be. Um, though I suppose like if you are a political sort of uh, artist, that's different. But just like naturally the way that you're engaging with public and, and the stories that you have and the memories, I think that's what becomes really strong about public art and why that's really important so is there a way to engage with the public or the community from a very young age i guess i would be very interested in knowing that because in europe that sense of the exposure of like kids going to see museums museums going to see exhibitions that comes at a very young age because it's just part of culture, even in China, like that's actually quite common. Um, so I'm curious into some, is to some place like LA where it is a driving city, Santa Monica is slightly different. Is it possible to go and get, to foster that relationship with the arts in public early? I certainly hope so. <laughs> I mean, I, I have to have hope for that. I think that it is really challenging. And I think there's a lot of, um, you know, for some of those issues that I mentioned earlier around um, school funding and, you know, just not having the resources all the time to be able to have art specialists on your campus. Um, and having to, you know, kind of piece it together through after school programs or field trips or things like that. But I think that having a real fluency in the arts from a very young age, you know, has proven to be incredibly uh, beneficial to young people. And I think it would definitely change the, the sort of structure for how art functions here in the United States. I mean, it's very much, um, something I think, and this is very broadly, obviously not true of all people, but um, seen as something that's a luxury, you know, or it's for the elite, it's for people who have the means. Um, and I don't think that should be true at all. You know, it should be for all people and, you know, having true access and equity to the arts, we're a long, long way from that. Um, and there's a lot of work that needs to be done. I mean, it's, it's very hard for um, arts organizations and artists to make a living in this country. Um, you look at other countries where there's Ministry of Cultures who that do, I mean, increasingly less so, but still in, in many places that, you know, provide lots and lots of funding for artists and for the arts. Um, and as a residency program, we often see that in the, the countries that are willing to send their artists over. Uh, with fully put paid residencies, you know, wow. to spend time in LA, um, just because that they believe that that's so important for developing the cultural talent in their countries. Um, and, you know, that's just not something we see as much of here with as many great people who are there working, working away at it and trying to, um, trying to build sustainable infrastructure for the arts, you know, it's, it's not enough a lot of the time. And that starts with I think like you 
like you said, you know, it starts young. It starts with people valuing the arts from a young age and recognizing the importance that it plays um, in our society. And, so and important. I, yeah, and I just so don't think, important. I think people know that. And, you know, Americans for the Arts has done studies of like the general public and what and how important the arts are to people. Um, but it just doesn't translate to dollars. <laughs> and it, it doesn't does. translate to, to being the a core part. Yeah, yeah it does for a very small percentage. I think but. what you're saying is there is this, especially in America, and I think as you go west increasingly, because I think that on the east coast it is a little bit more involved. Um, people are yeah, like New more, York, or, yeah, like New yeah. York, and yeah. you know, like there in DC, there are more cultural institutions and the history, and people are really engaged in like what that is, as opposed to here where things are still a little bit newer. Mm -hmm. But even though people know, because I know this is a conversation I have with people all the time when I had conversations with people and I wasn't in my house all the time, that you know, they want to engage with art but they don't know how outside mm -hmm. of LACMA or standing in light at the road, you know, even people in their thirties and forties and fifties don't know that you can just walk into a gallery mm -hmm. and you can see art for free and it's okay. Um, and that, that those are things that they can engage in or if they wanted to, you know, purchase art that it doesn't all cost a hundred thousand dollars and mm -hmm. that there are places to engage with that on like every single level um and it and we is, haven't there's it's hard to get people to know that like it doesn't have to be this complete elite situation where you're not engaged and that like your kid can't go and you know participate and even people who don't know about you know the programs that like LACMA or the Huntington Gardens or you know are doing or hammer for younger kids to get them in to engage with the art in a way that like helps them educate them how to talk about it to learn from it to learn from their their own creativity yeah and and we haven't been great about that in the art yeah. world no. about welcoming people no. and, and welcoming people of all different backgrounds um you know i don't feel welcome a lot of the time no, like, I mean... no exactly <laughs> exactly even even those of us who you know have made this our careers um sometimes don't feel welcome in those spaces so i think it's very much like you know we have a lot of work to do within mm -hmm. the um within the museum or arts organization or even gallery culture yeah. you know to be welcoming um and noise cancellation headphones i think that like <laughs> really helps and just completely just having like tunnels. yeah you just go in and you're like i'm just not gonna look at you but then like i guess that you're sort of perpetuating that as well you know like yeah yeah about. it's i mean it goes back to that idea of like the the silent sacred beautiful mm -hmm. space you know the the tower on the hill like the getty and that's not for the riffraff, right? right. <laughs> it's, for, it's for the elite. And we still have those structures built into our organizations. As much as we try to work against them, I think you have to be super proactive to get out into communities, to be in different spaces, um, and to not be so married to the white walls. You know, mm -hmm. I think that's part of it. Is, and, and that's what interested me so much about public art is, you know, going to the place where the people are rather than um, having people have to overcome, you know, the, the intrinsic biases of the spaces of arts and culture. 
that we kind of but isn't it so interesting at the same time though you know when you're trying to go and have a different the same conversation but in a different perspective all of a sudden then then the response is oh but that's not art oh but like i can go here and i can access this but that can't be art either because like there's like this very niche definition of what people think only is art (laughs) you're Mm -hmm. like that's Mm -hmm. not true and in the sense of um creativity is i think recess can be creative i think you can Mm -hmm. you know drawing in the sandbox or just i mean i don't know how clean it is but like that basically tells you how big of a germaphobe i am but that aside it's like you know if you're building sand castles do they still have sandboxes in in play are there still playgrounds Okay. If there are, you're not allowed to go on them, but yes, they exist. Okay. okay. So, you know, I think that fosters creativity, you know, like being able to go and play soccer with other kids, you know, trying to go and understand how to go and have teamwork and all those things. I think it's like so important and I don't see, or maybe there are, but like, I don't see recess getting cut down. Oh my God. Please tell me that there's still recess and there's still lunchtime. Well, not in quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I think that you, you need to have the imagination just run wild. Daydreaming, I think it's one of the best tools as an artist. And people are just like, mm, you can't daydream. You can't, like, make money off them. And it's like, well, you know, I can't. But some of the best things come out in daydreaming. <laughs> I don't see productivity in daydreaming. But then you do have those meetings where people are, you know, brainstorming and then people do see productivity in that it's people get narrow-minded um so we talk about the arts and the education arts in the civil space but in social justice or in arts taking cues from these grassroots organizers are you seeing you know i like the grassroots organizers and the social you know justice warriors which i am i like to think that i am one um the them borrowing ideas from the arts. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that we see that in um, protest art a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, we see the power of symbols and the right. power of uh, of certain images that can really, um, you know, really create movement around you know certain issues. And so, I do see definitely that. Um, there being a real back and forth between mm-hmm. the power of the arts and power of, of grassroots political organizing. I mean, I think that it's really important too, um, you know, to see more grassroots political organizing like groups really also value the strategies when they're exposed to them of, of arts groups that may be working towards a similar goal, mm-hmm. um, but with slightly different strategies. And those can be quite complementary. At time, uh, at times, um, there's a there's a project that I'm researching right now um, in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, um, called the Feminist Strip Club, and they're working um, side by side with the Sex Workers Organizing Project. Hell yeah! Um, and they had been working on this ordinance that would protect dancers in adult entertainment venues um, and and protect the really horrible sort of tipping structure that they had to go through um, as well as like health concerns. So it was a city ordinance that was passed, but the, the feminist strip club was more of an arts group. Um, and 
sex workers organized project was much more of an activist group, you know, that was really helping actually push the policies forward and been, had been doing a ton of work on that. Um, but they were able to work with Feminist Strip Club to have like media come out around it, you know, have this, this zine that was produced that had this amazing like poster that people could hold up at the actual ordinance hearing. Yes. Um, so there was very complimentary work that was happening between these two groups and, and they, they were both really important, you know. Um, the, obviously the policy work wouldn't have gone through if it hadn't been for the activist group, mm -hmm. but the, the um, arts group was, was helping support that with actually bringing a lot of people to the hearing and really helping to gather some support around it. And, and so I think that those um, can be incredibly complimentary. That's interesting. So I was thinking the other day that one of the reasons actually that like, you know, the Black Lives Matter has been getting so much great traction and visibility is because there's been so much great art and visuals and design and graphics around it that are so easily digestible. And I feel like one of the reasons that a lot of people aren't taking COVID as seriously is because we don't have the same kind of visual imagery we can't have the same pictures we can't have the same like powerful photojournalism i mean but, <laughs> like how to wash but that's hands. that's like so boring and institutional where we've been seeing those things since we've been in kindergarten where it's like this is in the bathroom this is how you wash your hands yeah and i would say like there i think there's i'm aware of artists right now who are trying to work on that i mean it's it's hard now obviously with the quarantine to get that work out there as much. But, um, but yeah, I mean, artists keep making work and they're obviously making work about relative, you know, relevant current context of stuff. And I think if cities took a cue and like involved artists more and embedded them in the conversations around visual communication, like it would be, it would look totally different. Mm-hmm. I, it just it's we are a very visual culture now especially with social media and it's it's a very people that's how people like to digest their things and those kinds of it's been really incredible to see the graphics that have come out and the photos and the art um on the but i i'm really i really do think there's a disparity in terms of where of what also what's available because it's not like you can go to a hospital and take pictures <laughs> of COVID patients you can't and that's you know that kind of access which is absolutely understandable and for everyone's health but it's it's hard to be able to get those messages out there without the um without those great visuals sue what have you heard read seen this week that has been tickling your brain <laughs> well, I have a couple of um, recommendations and I would have them, they're both around uh, like role-playing games, Ooh. which I have dabbled in in the past, uh, played a little Dungeons and Dragons myself, but yeah. one is a podcast that I am loving. And these are both like totally escapist recommendations. <laughs> Please, yes. Um, it's called Rude Tales of Magic. And it's a fantastic, probably the best like D and D podcast I've listened to. But it's these hilarious comics that all I think they're all from Brooklyn, um, doing you know these these amazing characters. And so I highly recommend the the Rude Tales of Magic uh, podcast series. And then the other thing that I was really interested in 
is it's actually, I learned about it from another podcast um, called Imaginary Worlds. And it's on LARPing during the pandemic. So live action role playing. And just the ways that these um, theater groups have turned to live action role playing via Zoom as one of the ways that they're like getting this interesting work out there, theatrical work during this pandemic time when they can't be open and they can't have stage productions and that sort of thing. So they're like, you know, there's like call in sort of LARPing where you're pretending to be different characters Um, or there's like, you know, Zoom LARPing where you can change your background and be on a different planet. And, you know, (laughs) I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing um, what people are coming up with during this time. And again, it's like, you know, artists, theater people, like people just sort of working with what we have and still doing really creative, amazing things. And um, I, it brings me a lot of hope. It's like, I kind want of to see a full like opera. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? I think there's some amazing stuff out there that people have been doing despite it's the pandemic. What Stephanie, who we had on last week was saying, constraints are opportunities. And this is it. Actually, my brother was in a Zoom uh, Instagram acted piece recently. And that was oh, really wow. fun. Like they did a whole thing about this girl, like her whole life in quarantine around like Zoom meetings with like her friends and her therapist and her boyfriend or ex-boyfriend. Um, and it was just like really, it's really neat what people are like, all right, we've got to keep creating. And I love that about artists. I love it so much. It's like my favorite thing. Um, so, Sue. Where can we find you on the internet? <laughs> well, you can find my podcast at pavedparadisepodcast.com. And um, my other work in writing that I've done is at suebellyank.com. I'll put all of that in the blurb. And thank you so much. Thank was you. Like such a joy. Thank so you so much. So interesting. This was awesome. Great conversation. Thank you, guys. Until next time, bye. Bye. Bye.